The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. Carl J. Cox here. I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by 40 Strategy. 40 Strategies built to make strategy work for small to medium-sized companies and organizations by designing world-class strategic plans and help keeping them accountable to get it done. To learn more, go to 40strategy.com. As this is being recorded on the College National Championship, we're going to do a little shout out to TCU and go Horned Frogs. I am not a personal alumni of that. My daughter happens to be a soccer commit, so I am now a TCU cheering and supporting person. And so with that, go TCU. Of course, this is being recorded and be released a month later. So we'll see what the actual results of that are. And we also like to do a shout out to Eric Paul. He's a CEO from Axiom. He actually recommended Lewis Foreman to be as one of our guests today. And with that, Lewis is the founder and chief executive of Adventist Partners, an integrated product design and engineering firm. Over the past 20 years, he has created nine successful startups and has been directly responsible for the creation of over 20 others. He's the inventor of 10 registered U.S. patents, and his firm is responsible for the development and filing of well over 700 more. He also happens to be the assistant professor of entrepreneurship at Wake Forest University, Johnson & Wales University, Central Michigan, and an adjunct professor, and the entrepreneur in residence at the McCall School of Business at Queens University. Lewis, welcome to the Measure Success Podcast. Thanks, Carl. It's great to be with you today. Well, when we were talking in our prep discussion, we always said, and, and I think those who, who are used to this is over a hundred episodes we've now done, uh, Lewis, but I, I always like to ask you, like, we're basically doing a, a screening call, so to speak. And, and Lewis, and about, after about 18 words, I was like, okay, you're already qualified. In terms of what you have done for entrepreneurship and business, it's pretty unbelievable Explain to me today and to the audience a little bit more detail about what, what you were actually doing today. Yeah. So I, I live and breathe entrepreneurship. I started my first business while I was in college. And over the last 35 years, that's all I've ever done. I've never really had a job. And so I've started companies, I've built companies, I've sold companies. And today I have a handful of businesses that I've been growing uh, with a great, great team. And we design, engineer, develop, and launch consumer products and medical devices. So here you've been this serial entrepreneur. And how did you get started? What was your first business and how did you get started in that? Yeah, you know, the first business I started in college was selling lacrosse equipment. So I went to the University of Illinois. I played lacrosse. There wasn't a local supplier of equipment. This was back in the 80s. And I was taking an econ class and I learned about supply and demand. And what I was taught by my professor was 
when there is demand for a product or a service and when the market doesn't address that demand, there should be a business opportunity. So rather than just sit in class and take notes, I thought, why not take action? And so I started my first business in my fraternity room. I bought the equipment from manufacturers out on the East Coast. I printed a catalog. I mailed the catalogs to teams all throughout the Midwest, and I waited for the phone to ring. So did it ring? I'm kind of curious. You know, that's one of those interesting things of because one thing is creating a catalog. Another thing is actually closing a deal. So what happened in the early stages? Yeah. So keep in mind, I'm, I'm dating myself a little bit. This is the 80s. So we lived in an analog world. The phone literally rang. There was no internet. There was no email. You couldn't just build a website to sell your product. And I also had class to go to and there weren't cell phones. So I had a pager. My pager would vibrate when someone was trying to get in touch with me and I would go back to my fraternity room and I would call into the answering service and get the order. But we used whatever technology was available to make it work. And obviously today, you could build a very successful business out of your fraternity room or out of your dorm room or wherever you want to start a business. And you don't have to rely on the analog tools that we used back in the 80s. But the business grew. And we were generating revenue, and we realized that to grow the company, we needed other products that we could sell to the same teams. And apparel seemed like a natural fit because those teams needed t-shirts and hats and bags and uniforms. And so I was selling screen-printed apparel. And by the time I left college, that business pivoted to become the 24th largest screen-printing company in the United States. So I had about 300 employees, 80,000 square feet of manufacturing space. We produced millions of shirts a year. And that really got me into, you know, kind of my next business, which was a NASCAR apparel business that I started in Charlotte, North Carolina. And that's where, you know, I live today. And the reason why I moved to Charlotte was the apparel business. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Okay. So I think it is, I, I'm, I'm curious about this because there, there's so many entrepreneurs who who get started like early like you and then there's others who like start a little bit later on you're continuing for some it's like wow it it's, feels like so much risk but for you it just it made sense right you were just literally fulfilling a need so after you completed the cross business and then you went through the apparel you know the nascar apparel business and you definitely went to the right place if you're in charlotte right you know that's definitely you know great great choice and location going to there what got you to your next thing? So what were like, because you it was really interesting. You had a, what I call a natural adjacent pond that you were selling to next, right? And you had the the business and the ability to get towards it. Did you end up sell? So did you sell that lacrosse business and, and did that bring you to the apparel business? So the, uh, the lacrosse business just kind of pivoted into the apparel business. So yeah. being in a fraternity, every event requires a t-shirt, Building an apparel business on a college campus was, was easy. Scaling it into a national apparel manufacturing company is what you know took a lot of effort and a lot of risk. But we, we grew that business and then exited that company in 1995 and then moved to Charlotte to start the NASCAR apparel business. Built that business to a little over $20 million in 18 months and then exited that business selling it to a public company. And then I was looking for what I wanted to do next. And I've always had a passion for innovation and for new products. And I started developing products that were used in the sports protective industry, 
built an IP portfolio around that technology and then sold that company and then realized that there should be a business devoted to developing new products. And that's what led me to Inventus. And so Inventus, we just celebrated our 21st year in business. We've developed over 3,000 consumer products and medical devices for some of the leading medical device companies and consumer product companies. And then we work with lots of entrepreneurs and startups as well. What is the key characteristic that you think for yourself was so important to be able to, and in, in that you teach, right? Because you're teaching this as well. You're teaching these principles that you've learned yourself. What are, what are a two or three of the key characteristics that are critical being able to make a small business work, you know, get it off the ground from nothing and actually be into something that's viable enough to be able to sell to another company? Well, you know, obviously entrepreneurs have to manage uncertainty. There, there's no guarantee when you're an entrepreneur. You know, if you work for somebody else and you put in the hours, the government makes sure you get a paycheck. But when you're an entrepreneur, you can put a lot of time and effort into a business and there's no guarantee that you're actually going to get paid for what you do. So it's really important to get comfortable with this uncertainty in a business. But for an entrepreneur, you've got to recognize that many entrepreneurs fail, many small businesses fail. And the reason they fail is because they don't do their homework before they start the business. They jump in with both feet before they've really checked to see if the market conditions are right for their business. And so I'm a strong believer in making sure that you determine the feasibility of an idea before you start a company. There's really five simple questions you should answer before starting a business. And if you feel comfortable with the answers, then the likelihood of success is going to be that much greater. Okay. So of course, what are those five questions that you need to ask? Well, the first question is, is pretty simple and straightforward. And that is, what is the product or service that you've created and what makes it unique? Because the reality is we have everything we need as consumers. What you've got to convince a customer is not to buy your product, but to not buy what they're already buying because the incumbent has the advantage. We're getting everything we need. So you've got to convince a customer to not buy what they're currently buying and to buy your product instead. And so that's a challenge. So you've got to have a product that has some value proposition. There's got to be something about that product that is going to make a customer want it versus need. The second question is you've got to define who that customer is, because a lot of times entrepreneurs go into business thinking that everyone is going to need their product. And now you've got two strikes against them because number one, they don't need it. And number two, everyone isn't in a position to purchase it. So who's the perfect customer? And if you answer question number two, then question number three is pretty easy. And that's, is there demand? And to determine demand, you don't ask your friends and family. You don't go out and talk to a small group of people. You talk to the perfect customer, the person who's most likely to consume your product or service. And you've got to not only determine whether they want it, but more importantly, how much are they willing to pay for it? Because sometimes entrepreneurs create a $100 aspirin. It may get rid of the pain and it may work better, but the price of the remedy is more than the problem it's solving. Fourth question, how much money do you need? 
you know, being an entrepreneur is a journey and you need to make sure you have enough money to get you to the destination. Of course, the destination is profitability. If you don't have enough to get you to profitability, you're eventually going to fail. And then the last question is, where's that money going to come from? You know, are you going to get it from friends and family? Are you going to invest your own capital? Do you plan to raise money from outside investors? But make sure you've got the capital that you need to get to profitability. And then the adventure is a whole lot more enjoyable. Raising money part and that where are you going to get money from is is all five, I think, are great questions, by the way. I think they're they're perfect. I love how you went through that and very, very logical. Let's say you get through those first three and you don't have money yourself, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you're starting like, and once again, I don't know what your specific situation were like when you were coming in your fraternity room, but I, I kind of picture a lot of times the starving student, if you may, you know, in that situation. How do you get to that situation where you are creating enough capital to actually get by or to actually get have enough to get investment. You know, how, how do you cross that chasm, if you may, right, of, of the uncertainty of, oh gosh, I know I need, let's say 250,000. Let's say you're a really small business, right? I need $250,000. I don't have it, right? I'm I'm broke, so to speak. How, how does some, how does an entrepreneur go about crossing that chasm to, to solve that problem? Yeah. So obviously, if you've got your own capital, that's great. My first business, I started with $500 and I just reinvested all the profits back into the business and grew it that way. But eventually, as you grow a business, you want to scale faster. And that's where outside capital makes sense. It could be equity capital, where you give up some ownership in your business to grow it faster. It may be debt capital, where you go out and raise you know, you borrow money from banks, whether it's to finance inventory or, you know, to manage your receivables, but there's some underlying asset behind the money that you're borrowing. But ultimately, if you're raising money, whether it's debt or it's equity, there's got to be a compelling reason for somebody to invest. And so when I hear people talk about their difficulty raising money, what I'm really hearing is, they're not doing a very good job of explaining how investors are going to make money off of an investment because that's the beauty of capitalism, right? You know, if if I'm channeling my inner Gordon Gecko, greed is good. Capitalism exists because when there's an opportunity for someone to generate an economic return off of an investment, they're going to give you money. And so as an entrepreneur, You've got to do a better job of explaining to investors why they should invest in your business and what sort of return you're going to be able to deliver. Maybe it's a financial return. Maybe it's lifestyle. Maybe it's great for society. But there's got to be some juice for the squeeze. Otherwise, there's no reason to do it. I think that's such an important, I've, I've seen a lot of pitch decks, so to speak, in my my career, you know, and I've seen a lot of these opportunities. And it's amazing how many times you don't see by putting in X, you're going to get Y, right? Th- this is going to be the return as a result of your investment. And I know there's always a little bit of uncertainty and risk of what is going to be, but there's ultimately a goal. So I'm curious about that because there is some restrictions about what you can and can't promise right? But there should be a compelling reason of, okay, let's say you have a million dollar business and you plan it to get to 5 million in three years, right? That should theoretically be a return. How 
and also there's another part. Typically, we have what we call accredited investors, meaning people are experienced. They've done something enough where they have enough money to have the risk tolerance to put fifty thousand, or hundred thousand, or two hundred thousand, or five hundred thousand dollars in to help a company out. What do they? You, you talk about that. How do you create that? I hate to say it, black and white, where it's so clear and compelling that they're like, yeah, of course I'm going to do that. This is a no-brainer. Like I have to put my money in this, right? Because that's a situation you want to get an investor to go towards, correct? Right. There, there's a number of ways to de-risk a situation. One of the tools we use to de-risk the launch of a new product is crowdfunding. So reward crowdfunding platforms like Kickstarter and Indiegogo initially were used for entrepreneurs to bootstrap an idea. You've got this great idea, you need capital to launch it, so you throw it out on a platform and you get money from backers who are buying the product before it exists. And while that is a good tool to launch a product, it's an even better tool to get market validation because what you're doing is, instead of a focus group where you're asking for someone's intent to purchase, Crowdfunding allows someone to actually buy a product before it's been made, and you get the money before you even produce it. It's a very pure and accurate way to determine whether or not there's demand, whether or not customers really want the product that you've got. And so armed with that information, now you can go to investors and say, look, you know, we put a product in front of consumers. In a 30-day period, we were able to sell tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars worth of the product. And that proves that there's actually demand for the product, not people raising their hand and saying, yes, I think I'd buy it. They've actually bought the product at the price you're selling it for. And so if you extrapolate the success of that crowdfunding campaign, once the product's launched, whether it be e-commerce or traditional retail, it gives you a better indication of the likely success of that product. I'm curious of the all the different investment because you've been involved in so many startups and, and companies that have been involved with. What, what percentage of the companies that you've been working with or you hear use crowdfunding today, you know, experientially that are product-based companies? Yeah, crowdfunding is great for consumer products. You know, it, and it's not a perfect fit for every type of consumer product, but tech products, sports products, storage and organization, kitchen, those are all good categories for crowdfunding. You know, we've done nearly almost 3,000, over 2,800 Kickstarter campaigns wow. in our 20 year history. And so, you know, we've raised hundreds of millions of dollars for our clients of non-dilutive capital. In many cases, that was the capital they needed to get their business off the ground. So it's it's very uh, encouraging to see that a platform still exists where entrepreneurs can go out there and they can get the type of feedback that they need to, to really make a smart decision. But you really have to de-risk the situation. And if you can eliminate some of the uncertainty around a transaction, then the likelihood of success is going to be that much greater. So what are some examples of how do you help eliminate that uncertainty from the investor standpoint? Yeah. So obviously crowdfunding is one way to do it. So that proves and validates that there is demand. Secondly, you've got to make sure you've got enough capital to get the product to the point where you can actually start generating profits. And they've got to be 
realistic financial that are achievable and attainable. And then you also have to look at, you know, what's the exit strategy? And so you've got to start thinking out into the future. All right, what am I trying to create here? Am I building a lifestyle business around a single SKU or am I building a product company around multiple products? And what is it going to cost to launch those products? And what kind of kind of compounding revenue will you generate from product after product after product? And then what's the exit? You know, how do you sell that business? You know, do you sell it to an aggregator? Do you sell it to an existing consumer products company? Do you grow the business and, you know, one day hope to take the public, you know, the company public, but how do you exit from the business? And then therefore, what's the corresponding return to the investors who have backed you from the very beginning? Got it. Got it. It's awesome. When you, another key part of, once again, an entrepreneur comes in and they have this product idea, what is the most common thing they overlook? One of the biggest things that entrepreneurs overlook is the competition. They just assume that no one else is doing what they're doing because maybe they don't see the product in their local store, or maybe it's not being sold on Amazon, or they've never heard of it before. And when they really start to do their diligence and they start to kind of search, they find out that there's not that much difference between what they've come up with and what's currently available. So you've got to figure out how you're going to differentiate yourself. And maybe it's just better style or design. Maybe it's better packaging. Maybe it's a better warranty. Maybe it's better for the environment. But you've got to have something that differentiates your product from the competition because again, they've got the advantage. They're already there. They already have customers. And you've got to convince their customers to stop buying what they're familiar with and try yours instead. I love this concept of, of that everything's kind of already out there and that to some extent, right? And that they have to stop buying. Like you're literally competing against existing dollars. There's not like new capital that's being created for you. It's it's actually you you have to get them to make a different decision to get towards there, and I think that is overlooked often. I mean, I, I appreciate that insights that you have behind that. How much you know? You, you mentioned all these different things from the differentiators that you can create. What have been the, kind of the consistent ones, if there is, that this differentiator or that differentiator tends to be winners, so to speak, you know, in the market. You know, there's a lot of things that customers value. They value quality. They value efficiency. They value the impact a product or service has on the environment. They value personalization or kind of uniqueness. And so you've got to figure out who your perfect customer is and what's important to them. You know, we... we Take for, for granted all these great products and services that we use every single day. But at some point, that product or service didn't exist. Someone came up with that idea. And they came up with a way to introduce it in a, in a way that was better than what was being sold prior to that product or service. So in, in your core business of, of startups and, and developing how how what are the key components you measuring success for them right you know so what what are these key processes along the way you're working with a new business 
what metrics are you typically looking at to understand, wow, this is, this is going to work or it's not going to work? You know, success is a measurement that needs to be defined by the entrepreneur. One of the biggest mistakes you can make is, is use the measurement that someone else comes up with, that you want to be a millionaire or a billionaire, or that you want to sell X number of products or generate a certain EBITDA. And so success has to be something that is important to you. And maybe success is that you can do something that you love. Maybe success is that you can work your own hours. Maybe success is that you can go to your daughter's soccer game instead of having to work or travel for your job. And so a lot of entrepreneurs will pursue their own business because they want to make a lot of money. They want to make an unlimited amount of capital. They don't want to be restrained by the person who is above them. Other entrepreneurs start business because they want to take control over their life. They want to be able to work when they want to work. They want to be able to enjoy working from home or going to their kids' sports events or being able to travel whenever they want to travel. And then there are other entrepreneurs who do it because they want to make you know, an impact on society. They want to do something that the rest of the market hasn't addressed, and they want to leave less of an impact on the world than everyone else has. So I'll perhaps go to you now, you personally, from what you're, you've been measuring success for your own businesses. What's that been for you? What, what, what are the key measurements that have defined your success from a business perspective? You know, I'm, I've been very fortunate in that in my companies, I can not only achieve success for myself and for my partners and my employees, but we can also achieve success for our clients. And so when we're able to help a client launch a new product, that has this kind of compounding effect because not only was it good for us, but it's good for them, for their families and for the families of their employees. And it's good for the consumers because we can launch a new product that brings joy or brings efficacy or brings efficiency or brings value to the marketplace. And so we're surrounded every single day by these successes, both from a personal and business standpoint, but also from kind of a consumer standpoint as well. What, what I really enjoy, though, is, is being able to share these lessons with others. And it's the reason why I teach. You know, I feel like entrepreneurs have a responsibility, whether it's a moral responsibility or a social responsibility, to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs, because they're going to be the ones that come up with these game-changing ideas that make our lives better as we get older. And so, you know, if you can reach out, if you can help somebody by making the journey a little bit more enjoyable or a little less difficult, then you've done a great job. I love that. No, I love that we did there. So I want to now, I, I think I could ask a million questions about business, but I always like to go to the personal side of it because you have been involved with so many different startups and, and so many other companies that are in for, for many appear like this wildly stressful challenge, right? Of, of getting a product to the market, getting to a point where you get funding, continuing the growth, and then ultimately, ideally getting to a successful exit, whatever that is, you know, whatever, whatever exit is defined by. But that that's once again, a lot of people look at that from the outside as incredibly stressful. But for you, I, I have a feeling it brings you energy. But 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 let me let me just go to another point. 
what type of habits do you do on a consistent basis to give you that energy to bring it every single day when you go to the company and and help inspire others whether once again from the education start when you're teaching or whether it's actually working directly with an entrepreneur oh that's a great question and i wish i had a great answer for that i'm only wired one way and that is you know 100 percent. and so there's not a idling down process where I can say, all right, I'm going to disconnect and not do, you know, hundred percent of the effort this day. I get joy from what I do. And so as a result, I enjoy doing it. There's joy that's, you know, in creating something from scratch, there's joy in making something better. And there's joy in knowing that what you're doing, you know, has value to others. But I think the best advice that I can offer is, you know, surround yourself with great people because if you're working with great people and you know that's great employees, great partners, great customers, then it becomes a very enjoyable process. You're not doing it all by yourself and you're able to feed off of the energy of others to know that what you're doing actually has purpose. So it's interesting you said, and I actually really like the answer that you gave there because you talked about it seems like you're just in the right spot, right? You found what you're, you feel lucky. It almost sounds like you said you almost feel lucky, so to speak. I mean, I don't really believe in luck a whole lot, so to, if you may, but, but you have done the right things where you found yourself and you get to live every day the passion that you have. But are there like what I call other type of habits you develop from exercising or reading or developing that have also enabled you to keep this energy going other than the fact that you enjoy your vocation, so to speak, of your day-to-day activities? You've got to seek balance. As I get older, my balance changes in the first probably 25 years. My balance was very one-sided. It was lots of travel. But I I fed off that travel. I enjoyed going to conferences and meeting with customers and being on airplanes and staying in hotel rooms because every day there was something new to be discovered. Today, I get personal satisfaction from being able to spend more time, you know, in one place and to be able to grow relationships in that way. Obviously, technology has made a lot of this easier. The fact that you and I could have this conversation and neither of us had to get on an airplane to do it allows us to still be able to sleep in our own beds, but but have the same kind of conversation that we would have had that would have required travel five years ago, 10 years ago. So technology is evolving and allowing us to, to do a lot of the things that we spent a lot of time doing, but just doing it more efficiently. When you are, well, let me let me go to a deeper part because really interesting here. I'm kind of curious. Did COVID change that a lot for you? Was was that did that kind of change? Because I, I know a lot of people who were on an airplane four or five days a week, so to speak. You know, they were gone constantly, and they loved it. And then COVID really did stop for those typical business travelers that ability, even if they wanted to, they couldn't. Right? They couldn't get to their next place because that location was closed or they didn't want to be met. The people receiving didn't want to be seen, so to speak. Was that the catalyst for you to make that change or was it, were you doing it kind of along the way? No, I would say COVID accelerated that process. I would typically travel every single week, 150,000 miles a year on airplanes. COVID put an abrupt stop to that behavior and forced me to 
find other ways to be able to provide value to our customers, to our employees, and you know, to our investors. And so today, life is different. You know, in in the world we're in, we we continue to hire employees, and many of those employees don't live in Charlotte anymore. So we're just in a different normal, and that new normal is going to continue to evolve. I don't know if it will go back to the way things were, but it will definitely be different and will continue to change. So today, do you, do you have a physical office that you go to regularly? Or- yeah, so our main main headquarters is still in Charlotte. We've got a 30,000 square foot facility that we own that we've occupied for nearly 20 years. And it's an amazing environment. It's a really, really great place. But there's less people who come into that office today than there was three years ago. Has that enabled you to hire employees throughout the United States that you wouldn't have been able to hire in the past? Has that enabled, had changed your recruiting efforts, so to speak, for for employees that you have? Well, certainly prior to COVID, we were focused on hiring the best talent that we could find that would come to Charlotte, North Carolina. Charlotte's a great place to live, so it wasn't difficult. But we wanted our employees to be in the office to, you know, for collaboration. Today, we just look for the best employees we can find anywhere in the world, because we know that today we've got the tools to be able to allow them to work virtually, and they don't have to be in the office. So this has been a really interesting challenge for a lot of businesses. Of Some have wanted to go all the way back, right? So that they're trying to go back to pre-COVID world. And clearly you've adopted this quasi, right, virtual. And then you you already said you've now been able to attract people who don't have to move, right, to go to Charlotte and they can be employees. How, what things have you done to help create that culture still that you have or that ability to be able to communicate with effectively? Because you said you have this great building and facility, which gives me the impression of not only is it cool to be at, but it probably had a great culture in it. How are you connecting with people now that are around the world and they have that get that same feeling and also belief that they're being accountable, right, to the actions you're trying to complete on a day-to-day basis? We learn every day. We <laughs> we continue to evolve. And, and I don't think it's just unique to our business. I think every company right now is trying to figure out how do we maintain the culture of a company without the face-to-face interactions that happened in the hallways, in the conference rooms, you know, at the lunch table. And so, you know, I think that there will continue to be changes in that. We, we have a, a certain percentage of our employees come in every day, and they've been coming in since the very beginning because innovation is a collaborative process. There's a certain amount of magic that occurs when you are face-to-face working together looking at a prototype, trying to blow something up, you're trying to figure out a way to make something work that you can't replicate through a Zoom call. But there's other functions within a company that don't require people to be sitting around a table and to be in an office all day long. So there's there's a balance and we're just continuing to readjust what that balance looks like. 
Yeah, good for you. I, I think it's I, I appreciate the adaptive philosophy that you have and, and learning. You you I appreciate you saying we well, don't completely have it figured out yet, but we're learning through the process of getting to it. And I agree with you there too. There are functional areas where some it, it is very logical and makes sense. You can check people's work of certain aspects, right? Remotely, because it's like it's either getting done or not getting done type situation. But what you described too, that kind of creative process and the innovation side. Yeah, there are certain areas I think that are much more difficult. Not saying that it's impossible, it's just difficult to do on a remote remote basis, which I think is really interesting. What's a question that I didn't ask you that you'd love to share with the audience that that is consistent, if you may, with our conversation, or perhaps even not? It's just something that you really feel you want to get out. Yeah. Oh, well, I think we covered a lot, but I'm sure that there are going to be things that spark people's curiosity after after this call. You know, one of the things that I, I really pride myself in is the accessibility, whether it's one of my students or it's one of our clients or it's someone who has heard me on a podcast or at a conference or at a board meeting. And so anyone who has questions about bringing a product to market or launching a crowdfunding campaign. We've got amazing resources on our website at Inventus Partners. There's great videos and case studies and testimonials. There's no reason to reinvent what's already out there. There's great content already out there that you can learn from what others have done, both successes and failures. We also publish a magazine called Inventors Digest Magazine. It's been around for 27 years amazing stories about success and failure. And so if you want to be successful, surround yourself with successful people, do the homework. This isn't something that you jump into without preparing yourself. If you want to be successful, make sure that you prepare yourself for success. I love it. I love you sharing that. And and what is a book that inspire you or inspires that you think inspires or that's along this genre that we've been talking about that you recommend to others on a consistent basis? Yeah, you know, I love reading the stories of other entrepreneurs and other successful businesses because you learn from, again, their success, but also their failures. I consume magazines, every business magazine that you can imagine, every trade journal for pretty much every industry I get because I want to see what's happening in other industries because what might happen in another industry could translate into one of our industries as well. And, you know, I I think these podcasts and these videos can be exceptionally valuable as well. I, I can't point to any one particular book just because there's so many really great ones out there. All I can say is that if you want to be inspired, if you want to learn, there are resources out there that will achieve that for you. You just got to take the effort and do it. That's right. That's right. Well, as you already explained a little bit beforehand of ways to people can follow and connect. So is it just clarify the website for people who are listening right now? Yeah, the website is Inventus partners.com, E-N-V-E-N-T-Y-S, partners.com, or just inventus.com. And if you Google me, Lewis Foreman, you can certainly connect with me directly. You can send me an email. I, I think I'm pretty easy to find out there. And so I respond to every email that I get and more than happy to point people in the right direction. 
Lewis, this has been a real pleasure. I appreciate that. What I love about having guests and people like you is the education I get from this. And I know for our audience, if, if I'm getting this, I'm sure they're going to be learning a lot from this. And I appreciate your accessibility to any of them who may want to reach out to you. So thank you so much today for being a guest on the Measure Success podcast. That's my pleasure. And thank you for what you do, you know, for the business community as well. And to everyone who's listening, thank you so much for listening to this version that we have, this podcast with Lewis Foreman. This has been incredible to be able to get his insights. And to all of you, wishing you the very best at measuring your success. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Measure Success Podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best. Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes.